0: Welcome to Forging Plowshares, a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom of God. We hope this part of our ongoing conversation stimulates your mind and challenges your heart about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry.
1: And I'm reading here from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 13 to 16. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall, by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross, by it having put to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were far away, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have our access in one spirit to the Father." I would claim the central theme of Scripture is peace. The point of the atonement, and that's what's being described here, is peace. It says that Christ has broken down the wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile, and of course that wall of hostility is the law. That is that there is no longer this ethnic or religious antagonism. The work of Christ, the atonement then, is to establish peace. This tells us who God is, that God is continually described as a God of peace. And in this passage we can see each of the persons of the Trinity enacting peace. That Christ, first of all, establishes peace among people in making one new body, one new humanity, out of a divided humanity. This brings about reconciliation among peoples and also He says we have access through the Spirit to the Father. We have peace with God and with one another. And so God is peace. And he establishes peace and is establishing peace. That is, I think it's an unfolding reality. We read the Bible then, I think, through this lens. This is to be the way that we interpret it, that through the peace of Christ... I'm saying God is nonviolent and establishing peace, and this is the biblical story. Peace is integral to the cosmology. That is, that in most of the world, people think of the cosmos as a kind of dualism, that there's light and darkness, that there's a kind of battle. But in the Bible, we have a picture that there's ultimate harmony in God. And this means that sin is by definition the opposite of peace. Sin is violence. It's antagonism. It's hostility, Paul says. And so when we talk about the church, what is the point of the church? The church is to be a culture of peace. And so my claim here is that peace brings coherence to the Bible. It brings uh, coherence to our understanding of God. And this is the goal of Christianity. And of course the immediate response, might somebody might say, well that's not true. The Bible's full of violence. Church's history is full of violence. God seems to be violent. And I think what Paul is describing is that where Christ is made central, where he is our interpretive lens, not only in reading the Bible, but in apprehending God, In our understanding of creation, in recognizing the purposes of the church, peace is the coherent frame in which all of the doctrines hold together. You know, the doctrine of God, the doctrine of the world, the doctrine of human beings. So, for example, how do we read the Bible? Do we make this decision apart from our understanding of who Christ is? Or is this determined in conjunction with our understanding of the peace of Christ? Is the Bible a book of, oh, it's filled with eternal truths? Or is it a kind of byproduct of the age that produced it? This would be fundamentalism or it would be liberalism, respectively. Or in fact, can we see Revelation as unfolding? That is, this is the way that the writer of Hebrews pictured it. In times past, God spoken this way, but now he's spoken to us in his Son fully and completely. So that there is an unfolding of revelation. And this understanding of Christ as the final fullness of this revelation brings coherence where I think otherwise there would be contradiction. You know, what do you do with the violence of the Old Testament? With the picture of God in the Old Testament. And how does that fit with the peace of Christ? And the point is the peace of Christ. It's determinant of our understanding of who God is. This is the final and full revelation of our understanding of God. Of the Bible. Of the meaning of Christianity. But it's also an insight into ourselves and the world. How we understand them. And so what you do with the former picture, the God glimpsed at the beginning of Revelation, in light of the revelation of the later, the fullness of Christ, that's the very question that the revelation of Christ raises. You know, this is why the Jews, why his own people, the Jewish religion, or actually the Romans too, why they kill Christ. They say he's not representative of our God. He's not representative of our religion. And so they take their understanding and pit it against Christ. Biblical interpretation must be centered on the peace of Christ, or there is no coherent doctrine of the revelation of God. What the Jews understood about God pitted them against Christ. And so when Paul says Christ has broken down the wall of hostility, it's the wall of hostility in the way we read the Bible. Let's take another example. How do we read church history? Two things are clear from the teaching of the church in its first 300 years, and that is prior to Emperor Constantine becoming a Christian. Number one, Christians were forbidden to participate in violence or in any profession connected to violence, whether it was being a soldier working in any kind of uh, capacity that would involve violence. Number two, violence is such a pervasive and deeply rooted problem that it often went unnamed and unrecognized, even among those who were advocating its abolition. So we have Tertullian, an early church father. He forbids any participation in violence among Christians. He says... How will a Christian man war? Nay, how will he serve even in peace without a sword which the Lord has taken away? He's saying a Christian must not bear the sword in any circumstance. Jesus says to Peter, put away your sword. And Tertullian said, in disarming Peter, he unbelted every soldier. Yet, Tertullian could also revel in the potential delights of watching his enemies suffer. Quoting Tertullian, What sight shall wake my wonder, what my laughter, my joy, my exaltation, as I see those kings, those great kings, unwelcomed in heaven, along with Jove, along with those told of their ascent, groaning in the depths of darkness. It seems to be a contradiction. He completely rejected violence. I believe insofar as he understood it, but he was blind to the violence that he projected onto God, and I believe which he harbored in himself. And so if Christ institutes peace in place of violence, the presumption is that the atonement is aimed at defeating violence throughout. Throughout history, throughout each of us as human beings, throughout the church. But the extent of violence is not a fully worked out understanding in the early church. So that an unfolding Christocentrism, that is an unfolding idea that Christ is the center, it holds together the contradictions of history. We can go back and see, oh yeah, they were against violence and they participated in violence because they did not completely comprehend and Christ is breaking down this dividing wall. That is that we can do theology. We can read better than they did. Now this whole problem is compounded with the conversion of Emperor Constantine. Even under Constantine, the church, the Rome, what becomes the Roman church, or the called the Catholic church, just meaning the universal church, they're still going to equate Participation in violence was sin. But you could become a soldier, but you had to go and confess, you know, if you committed any acts of violence. And then the developments of Augustinianism. Augustine is a theologian, a church leader right after Constantine. And he's going to introduce two ideas the idea of original sin. And an idea of dualism. That is that you can follow Jesus in your heart. And you can do something different outwardly. And this is going to feed into a different understanding of atonement. That is the work of Christ. And so about 1100 AD we have a man named Anselm. And he gives us the doctrine of divine satisfaction. And what he's saying is well... You know, in the early church, when they said, what did Jesus, what is he doing? He's bringing about peace. He's over and against the violence of the world and specifically the violence of the evil one. And of course, when they'd say that, they'd point at the emperor. They would equate the emperor with the devil, really. Well, under Constantinianism, that's no longer a possibility. And so he gives us a kind of rational, legalistic theory. And this develops in the Protestant Reformation in Lutheranism and Calvinism. It gives us the doctrine of what we call penal substitution. You know, why did Jesus die? It's a kind of legal theory. And there is simultaneously, for the first time in the history of the church, the endorsement of state violence. And it becomes impossible, or nearly impossible... To really get at a positive theology of the atonement, I believe, without deconstructing these mistakes, these errors. You know, really, Augustine could not read Greek. He only read Latin. And then he reads Romans 5.12 and he gives us a doctrine of sin that is in fact mistaken based on a faulty Latin translation. This gives rise to his doctrine of original sin. We get a different doctrine of the atonement, and all of this culminates in penal substitution in the Protestant Lutheranism or Calvinism. Where Christ is removed from the center, I believe it's questionable if what survived can be equated with Christianity. Anywhere that the dividing wall of hostility remains, Clearly, the work of Christ has not been accomplished. And so strangely, you know, the theological explanation of Anselm and Calvin, they make the law the explanation of everything. They reduce the work of Christ to satisfying a law. What is the work of Christ doing? It's to defeat evil. It's to overcome the wall of hostility. It's to overcome the antagonism. The biblical picture is that sin involves a misorientation to the law. The law is the wall. That's, that's what Paul is saying. This dividing wall is connected to a misorientation, an understanding of the law, that I believe Calvin and Anselm both reproduce. What is the mistake? They say, oh, the wall, the law, is the arbiter of life and death. I believe this gets the depiction of sin wrong, but it also misses the idea of evil itself. That is that Paul is going to talk about the law of sin and death of giving rise to evil. Christ came to defeat evil. He came to suspend the hostility, the work of the law. He does indeed suspend the punishment of the law, but this law and punishment are not from God. It's at the root of human evil. In its destructive power, Christ breaks down the dividing wall of hostility, of evil. And so it's obvious the biblical conception of sin and the sinful subject. It's built upon a very specific deception. This is the way the Bible begins in Genesis. The deception of the serpent. It's renamed the covenant with death in Isaiah. You won't die. It's described as a poisonous lie, a throat-shaped sarcophagus, a bloody path of violence in the Psalms. And Paul then sums all of this up in depicting sin and then the the resolution to the problem, the defeat of the problem. In his depiction of being baptized into the death of Christ, it confronts the sin condition which is entangled with this primordial deception regarding death and the taking up of death as a kind of mode of life. Death as a lifestyle speaks, you know, it's an outward violence, it's an inward violence, but it's a destructiveness, an inward and outward destructiveness. And salvation from this orientation to death, this hostility, is through the resurrection of Christ, through resurrection life In the midst of death, Christ defeats death. He overcomes those who killed him. Christ breaks down the wall of hostility built in sin's deception. And once we get this straight, once sin is defined as a violent deception with cosmic implications, you know, this is the way that Paul describes it, that the cosmos itself has been subjected to futility. We can see all kinds of futility around us in violence and racism and nationalism and war. And Christ is pictured as a kind of apocalyptic breaking in of truth and redemption. That is, we're not going to start with the world as we have it, but we're starting again. And this is the idea of the word apocalyptic. It's in contrast to a legal theory, which kind of accommodates the structures of oppression, which would make the dividing wall permanent. It takes into account real world evil and its defeat, and it gives full accord to Christ as the center of history. And so uh, what we're calling an apocalyptic theology, it's not just a kind of Lutheran contractual reading, you know, you do this and I'll do that, step A, step B, but it's a departure from this legalistic understanding I think we need to say exactly what it is, and this is what Paul does in Ephesians and Galatians. If you look at Galatians a minute, talk about the ancient world, which Paul is clearly opposing in Galatians. In the ancient world is the idea that the origins, the fundamental building blocks of the world is built on hostility. There's a kind of war taking place, not just among people, but among the gods or in the universal powers. Through these kind of dualism or opposed pairs. The cosmos is founded on these opposed pairs. And Paul is saying this no longer exists. Look at Galatians 3:27 to 28. For when all of you were baptized into Christ you put on Christ as though he were your clothing. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For all of you are one. In Christ Jesus the dividing wall of hostility between people is broken down we no longer do identity through Jew Greek male female slave free those in Christ rightly recognize that we're in a new condition Paul actually says he suffered the loss of the cosmos that I died to the cosmos and of course what is lost is not God's good creation But this kind of false understanding. The opposed pairs, you know, they need oppression. And the work of the cross breaks the captive power of this old age, this old cosmic understanding, in which death and law and hostility reign. And in his life, Jesus enacts the peaceful life. Peace between Jew, Gentile, slave, free. You know, this is Mary's song. He has brought down the powerful from their thrones. He's lifted up the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things. And sent the rich away empty. And so the resurrection type life. Which Paul describes. He actually in Corinthians he describes it. Though you're in this situation. Maybe you're slave. Maybe you're free. Maybe you're married. Maybe you're single. He says act as if not. As if this is not your identity. This is not everything about you. The Hutterites, who were a kind of Anabaptist group, they had a special term for this. They call it Glassenheit. And the idea is of having let go of this kind of antagonism. And it's with as Paul's as if not. There's a kind of abandonment of self-concern, of self-affirmation. A relinquishing of the desire to be in charge or rule over things. is a kind of view from the bottom, you know, that you become the servant. Now, if we had to locate this in the United States, in the American experience, it's not really Jew-Gentile, is it? It's really white-black, I think, is one of the defining things. Not the only one. But one of the things that grounds the symbolic order of which we're all a part. I don't know if you're familiar with James Baldwin, the black novelist. He grew up in the church. His father was a preacher. And he says about his church experience, I was also able to see that the principles governing the rights and customs of the churches in which I grew up did not differ from the governing principles, the rights and customs of other churches, white. He's saying the black church and the white church had the same problem. The punishing law is still in place, the wall of hostility. He says, I would love to believe that the principles were faith, hope, and charity. But this is clearly not so for most Christians or for what we call the Christian world. And so Baldwin describes a Christianity that he says, quote, has operated with an unmitigated arrogance and cruelty. And it has identified itself with the realm of power. And the dominance of the value system of the ruling culture for Baldwin emptied the gospel of any meaning. I believe he was left with this crushing weight of prejudice that was put upon him. Now a man who was a theologian who is contemporary, James Cone, another black theologian, he describes the cross as enabling the lifting of the anger and pain that he felt was entailed in black oppression. This is Cohn. The more I read about and looked at what whites did to powerless blacks, the angrier I became. Paradoxically, anger soon gave way to a profound feeling of liberation. The countless acts of violence enacted on black bodies in lynching and murder. The name of his book is The Cross and the Lynching Tree. This brings him to a choice. This is Cohn. Either God is identified with the oppressed to the point that their experience becomes God's experience, or God is a God of racism. We must accept, Cohn says, that God is known where human beings experience humiliation and suffering, and that he identifies with the oppressed, with the poor, with the suffering, with the excluded. He says, being able to write about lynching liberated me from being confined by it. The cross helped me deal with the brutal legacy of lynching, of the lynching tree. And actually, the lynching tree helped me to understand the tragic meaning of the cross. Christ is lynched by a mob in first century Rome. And of course, this is the way law establishes itself, the wall of hostility. Through the power of exclusion, The exception upon which the rule is built. The exclusion of Jews, of Gentiles, of blacks, of strangers. In confronting the law, Christ suffers the ultimate exclusion. You know, there's a term here, homo sacer. He's not even a man. He's a biological being, but not a man. He's excluded legally from humanity. It's a legal term. He's stripped of legal status in the sight of the Jews. He's stripped of legal status in sight of the Romans. And of course he falls outside of either of these communities. And there are whole groups of people who continually and unconditionally are exposed to the potential of being killed. Some people can be targeted and the law allows for it. And Christ is an example of this. This power of death, you know, deciding who dies outside the city, outside the parameters of the city, establishes the rule of the city and of the rulers of the city. And of course, this describes who killed Christ and why. He dies outside the city of man, beyond law, beyond religion, reduced on the cross to bare life, homo sacre, biological life. He's not fully human. He forever exposes the basis of inclusion. How are you counted in? Because some people are counted out. The subject depended upon this law of exclusion, of identity through difference. I believe this gets at the city of man. The violence of the homo sacer, the violence of the lynched, the violence against the crucified, those who can be erased. This violence secures identity for some while erasing identity for others. And in Paul's depiction, this wall of hostility which constitutes the lawful subject that's been broken down by Christ. Now I believe this is also, you know, this is a political reality but it's also a psychological reality. It's an anthropological insight. There's a famous Danish theologian, Soren Kierkegaard. He says, do we learn this truth of Christ as if we are constituted a learning subject prior to the founding of our subjectivity? He's saying a very simple thing. Where do we begin? Do we bring what we know to Christ or do we begin with Christ and start from there? He's saying this knowing does not reason to the truth. You don't get here from somewhere else. You begin here. The truth determines the form of reason. Who Christ is determines the nature of the reason. The truth, Kierkegaard concludes, is relationship to God. It's not, you know, he talks about, well, we can constitute ourselves in our own self relation and imagine that that's enough. The truth is in, you know, myself or in the cosmic understanding. He's sometimes accused of being a fideist. That may be a strange word to you. That is a kind of faith in faith. But I believe what he's describing is an apocalyptic refusal to subject God's self-revelation to anything else. This is where we begin. God has acted in Christ, in his self-revelation, to constitute us as new subjects breaking down the dividing wall within us in which we are actually pitted against ourselves. Paul says, I do what I do not want to do, and what I want to do, I don't do. Another way of describing this, this is my conclusion. The encounter with Christ, it's not simply an improvement on the present human situation. You know, we just adjust a few things. It's not simply an attainment of forgiveness or relief from guilt. Nor is Christ's death simply a vicarious payment for sin. In this contractual understanding, the law, the cosmos, or the old order, oh, we can begin from here and get there. Paul is arguing that no one has any ground left to stand on. All have been declared unrighteous, Jew and Gentile. In fact, all of these explanations, you know, of Christ... Actually, they appear as kind of heresies in Galatians, in which the gospel could be framed as a kind of false gospel that Paul is opposing. They want to make of the gospel what is called a covenantal gnomism, a keeping of the law, in which Christ has meant the requirements of the law, so righteousness has been obtained on the basis of keeping the covenant through the law. Paul's gospel opposes this group. It opposes this partial gospel with the pronouncement that the malevolent grasp of the old order is finished. The old cosmos is finished. Christ has liberated us from slavery, slavery to his principalities and powers through his cross. The lie is displaced by the truth, Galatians 2.19, as by the cross, the cosmos has been crucified to me, and I have been crucified to the cosmos. That is, one cosmic order has ended, and a new cosmic order has begun. Circumcision, he says, is nothing. Oh, previously that had defined him as a Jew. He says ethnicity is nothing. He says philosophy is nothing. As what is taking place is on the order, he compares it to creation ex nihilo, creation from nothing. But the idea is this nothing is exposed in light of the creation. Galatians 6.14 For neither is circumcision anything, nor is uncircumcision anything. That was the marker between Jew and Gentile. What is something is the new creation. That old order is nothing. What is new is the new creation in Christ. Christ has broken down the wall of hostility. He's broken down a violent concept of God. Christ has broken down the wall of hostility in reading Scripture. Christ has broken down the wall of hostility between Jew, Gentile, black, white, male, female. Christ has broken down the wall of evil, the very source of violence. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through Him, we both have our access in one spirit to the Father.
0: Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative, biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have found this podcast valuable, please remember to share on social media. If you have questions about what you've heard, Or if you'd like to learn more about how you can get involved with Forging Plowshares or even support this ministry financially, please visit our website, forgingplowshares.org.